We continue today in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're winding down. We're almost to the end of talking about Peter's recipe for holiness. Um, and uh, chapter 1 of 2 Peter is, is uh, kind of uh, speaking of holiness. Um, and so uh, we see, we, we could say that the first chapter is Peter's prescription for holiness, and, and the second chapter is uh, preservation from error. And the third chapter is preparation for Christ coming back. But as we look at chapter 1 and, and holiness, we get down to verses 5 through 7, and we've been reading these each week. Um, and Peter says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. And he keeps adding these additional ingredients, and they seem to be in a particular order. And so we've been doing word studies on those as we go through them. And we remember that we are called to be holy in the first book of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 16. It says, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And this is our instruction. We are instructed to be holy. We need, as Christians, to live holy, godly lives that are pleasing to Him. We've looked at these several traits, and just by way of, of, um, uh, of remembrance, I keep lost the word I was thinking of, uh, we looked at the first trait in faith. Faith being the very foundation of holiness. Without being saved, without having that saving faith, we cannot live holy lives. We said that uh, there's the facts of faith, the, the head knowledge, knowing that, um, that I am a sinner, or that, that we are all sinners, and that um, sin must be punished. And then there's taking that knowledge and moving it down to our hearts and saying, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that my sin must be punished and that Jesus paid the price for my sin. And then taking that third step and actually accepting that and applying it to our lives and trusting those facts. Then we said, add to your faith virtue. We talked about the virtuous woman and how she is gentle, mature, strong. She's a teacher. She is productive. And the virtuous man, men of good moral character who love their wives, provide for their families, and raise their children in love. We then added knowledge, knowledge to be added to virtue. And knowledge is a divine gift that we should desire knowledge and that knowledge is precious. And then we talked about temperance. And temperance refers to what is um, coming from outside of us, how we deal with what is inside of our own uh, character. And we said that temperance is a fruit of the Spirit. It controls, we need to control our desires um, and that uh, we practice temperance or self-control because we're looking to the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next was patience. Patience deals with what is outside of us and affects us and how we respond to that. And we are patient. Patience is uh, waiting until the coming of the Lord. It's a preparation time, getting ready and, uh, and preparing ourselves for His return. Not being grudging. And it's an endurance, a joyful endurance. And then last Sunday we took a look at uh, godliness. And we said that this word uh, godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. One time it's the word the theosabia. It's the uh, uh, combination of the words theo and sebomai, which means to worship God. Um, and it's used one time in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. The other 14 times it's the word eusebia, which is a piety or a reverence. We said the characteristics of godliness were that godliness is a proof of our faith. Our good works do not save us, but we are saved to do good works, and our good works prove our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, James 2.18 and James 2.26 talk about faith without works is dead. 
Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Godliness is an example of our faith. Our commitment to godliness becomes evident um, in our lives, in our words, our lifestyle, our love, our attitude, our faith, and our purity, as according to 1 Timothy 4.12. Godliness is the action of our faith. If we do not make a conscious, earnest effort to pursue godliness, it will slip. We will backslide if we're not actually um, uh, consistently pursuing to be godly in our lives. There is going to be a slipping according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Our natural desires and the desires of the Holy Spirit are contrary one to another. The desire that the Holy Spirit has for us and the desire that our, our uh, natural man has for us are in conflict. We need to be um, daily, diligently following the Holy Spirit's leading, or we are going to slip. We talked about counterfeit godliness in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. One of, said, we said one of Satan's most powerful tactics is planting weeds in the wheat um, and sowing uh, false teachers who dilute the word of God. In, uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, told the parable of the enemy sowing tares among the wheat. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, and 1 John 4, 1 through 6, the warning of uh, false teachers. We saw uh, a strong warning to ungodly men by Jude in, in the book of Jude, verses 1 through 19, and the stern warning there. Um, and Peter identifies 22 attributes of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. Um, that's the um, uh, preparation for holiness, uh, as, as I said earlier, if we outlined it that way. So in chapter 2, um, he identifies 22 attributes of false teachers. And I encouraged you uh, last week to this week go back and look at some of those things and try to identify what those 22 traits are. And if you haven't done that yet, go back and do it. It's good for us to know um, what we're facing from the enemy. And then we said growing in godliness. Um, spiritual fitness requires daily training, just as physical fitness requires daily training. Um, we asked ourselves some tough questions at the end. If someone followed you around for one week, what would your habits and attitudes tell them about your walk with God? Are there activities that need to be cut from your routine? Is there someone you need to forgive or someone from whom you need to seek forgiveness? Is there a source of authority in your life that you struggle to accept? What is distracting you from pursuing godliness and anticipating heaven? And are you characterized by contentment? And that uh, wrapped up our uh, talking about godliness uh, last week. Today we come to the next ingredient in Paul's recipe for holiness, and that is brotherly kindness. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and ver uh, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And if you would again, please, let's read them out together uh, out loud. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. The Greek word here for Brotherly kindness is the word Philadelphia. You're familiar with that word. We have the uh, city of Philadelphia, which was, uh, take it, take, took its name. Uh, William Penn named the word uh, the city Philadelphia after this word. It's the, the combination of two Greek words, phileo, 
which, means, which is a, a word for love, and adelphos, which is brother. So it's brotherly love. It's a brotherly love, and we've, uh, people refer to the city of Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. There's four basic Greek words for love. One word is eros, that's physical love. That word is not used in our New Testament. There's the word stergo. It's an affectionate love. It's a family love. Um, it, that word itself is not used in the New Testament, but the opposite of that word is used, and that's astergos. It means without natural affection. And it's used twice in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, and in 2 Timothy 3, 3, when it says that you are without, these people are without natural affection. That's one um, type of love in Greek. And then the third word is phileo. That's our word here in our text today. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. However, the most common word for love in the New Testament is the word agape. This is unconditional love. It's used 158 times in the New Testament. Um, this is the type of love that God has for us. And this is the type of love we need to emulate um, as we love other people, that, uh, that unconditional love. Um, there is a fifth word um, in, um, in Greek for that's translated as love in our New Testament. It's in Mark chapter 12, 38, when it says, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplace. That's the word fellow. That's not an um, emotional love. It's the, like, I love to go fishing. I love to buy purses. I love to go watch the Packers play. You know, I love chocolate chip cookies, those kind of things. It's a, a longing to do something. It's not, a, uh, not an emotional love that we think of in that sense. But there is that uh, other word. It's used one time. Peter instructs us to use Philadelphia as we love those that uh, are, are around us and as we grow in our godliness. Um, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and hold your place there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica on brotherly love. Paul, um, well, the word brother is used 30 times in the book of Acts which is the, uh, when we get the uh, history of the church, the New Testament church, as it starts after Jesus is resurrected. Um, and it's the, the word brother is used 30 times. There's a real relationship that we have uh, as the church. Paul uses um, the word brother approximately 130 times in his letters um, that he wrote. Um, 130 times. And here in 1 Thessalonians, he uses the word brother 17 times. Our church ought to be a community of brotherly love. We ought to love one another. We ought to care for one another. And we're going to talk about how to do that today. In Paul's day, this was a new idea. Um, as I was, was studying this and reading through it um, and thinking about it, um, the gospel brought Two new thoughts, two special wonders to um, people at the time of Christ and at the time of Paul. First, there was a hope of immortality um, in verses 13 through 18. Um, that world at that time had no hope. In fact, um, we're in Thessalonians right now. There was an inscription found at Thessalonica that said, After death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. They had no hope. Uh, 
And that was the prevailing attitude at that time. You die and that's it. It's, uh, it's all over. Um, and so the gospel brought that hope of immortality uh, to the people. The second thing it brought was a love for humanity. The world was fragmented at that time. There was the rich and the poor, the, the free and the slave, the Jew and the Gentiles. And, and, uh, and there was a, a great division among the people at, the, uh, at that period of time. The church tied all believers together, brought them together in unity, brought them together as one body we read of. In Colossians chapter 3, 11, verse 11, and Galatians chapter 3 and 28, um, uh, Galatians 3.28 says, and Colossians 3.11 is virtually the same thing. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Those outside the church could not wrap their heads around this idea. They couldn't grasp that idea and understand um, how Christians, how these Jesus freaks could love one another. It wasn't um, something that they were used to. Um, and yet Jesus taught in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A new commandment. This was a new thought as Jesus was teaching. They weren't used to hearing that. Love one another. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in John 15, 17, these things I command you that you love one another. This was a new concept to the people at the time of the New Testament church springing up. This concept was also taught in Romans 12, 10, Romans 13, 8, 1 John 3, 11, and 1 John 4, 7, 11. And there's other verses too, and we just don't have time to get them all. Um, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love towards one another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So this growth is described here. I had you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, this growth is described in verses 9 through 12. In verse 9, it talks about our love for God. That's like the inner circle. If you can picture um, a circle in the middle, our love for God um, is the inner circle. And then in verse 10, love for our brethren. That's a little wider circle on the outside of that inner circle. And then it broadens out to the widest circle in verses 11 and 12, where we love those that are outside the fellowship. In verse 11, we love those where we work. And in verse 12, we love those where we walk. So first of all this morning, let's look at how love begins with God's love for us and our love for God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Christian love is not a feeling. It's a sacrificing, self-giving, willful act. It's an outward expression of what we, are, um, we have in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I treat you the way God treats me. If I'm going to treat you the way God treats me, I need to learn to love God. I have to experience God's love before I can turn around and share that love with anyone else. So Paul said he did not have to teach the Thessalonians, how to love one another. They are taught by God. 
God teaches us to love one another by sending, when he sent Jesus to die for us. In 1 John 4, 9 through 11, let me read that for you. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God teaches us to love one another. We also learn this in Romans 5.8 when it says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God teaches His love to us by sending Jesus to die for our sins. Jesus also teaches us to love one another. In John 13 and verses 34 and 35, and John 15 verses 12, and 17. These are instructions. We've read um, uh, one of those already. Um, how Jesus said, um, this is the commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. So God teaches, God the Father teaches us to love one another. And then Jesus teaches us to love one another. And the Holy Spirit also teaches us to love one another. Romans 5.5 5 says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Secondly, this morning we see that love spreads to all brethren. This is that second circle. In verses 10 and 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you study to be quiet, and do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. God expects Christians to love one another. We're part of the same family. We have the same spirit. We're, we're headed to the same heavenly home. We need to love one another. Not all brothers get along. Um, Cain killed Abel. These were the first brothers on earth. And one slew the other. Abraham and Lot had a disagreement. And they had to separate and go their separate ways. Joseph's brothers hated him. There was even rivalry among the, the apostles and some jealousy that seemed to kind of creep up among the apostles. And there's divisions in our church today. Brothers don't always get along. Families are often described as being dysfunctional. Well, what is dysfunctional? In order to define what dysfunctional is, you know, need to know what the function is of a family is. If you know what the function of a family is, then if it's not that, it's dysfunctional. The function of a family, among other things, is to provide love, safety, comfort, peace, and basic needs. That's what a family is for. And if a family isn't doing that, then it's dysfunctional. I was a domestic violence detective for five years in Tucson. I saw plenty of dysfunction. Some of it manifested in very um, simple, serious ways. But how do we show brotherly love? According to verse 11, it's by working. Second Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11 says, 
First, I'm in Timothy. There we go. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 11 says, For we hear there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. So as Paul writes the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, he addresses some people there that seem to have the attitude that since Jesus is about to come back, he's gone, but he said he's coming back, and since he's coming back, we don't need to work. And they just sponged off of those around them. They were busybodies. They were in other people's business, and they refused to work. And Peter, uh, Paul addresses that here and tells them that uh, they need to work. They need to um, be providing and take care of things. Um, we, uh, as much as we are able, we need to be providing for our families. Some of us have physical disabilities and things like that, and, uh, and we're not able to provide like we used to. But paying our bills, meeting our obligations, going to work, providing for our family, these are things that we do to show love for others so that we don't have to mooch off of them. We don't have to sponge off of them. We're not going to them and, and uh, relying on them. I love you enough to take care of myself. I love you enough to take care of my family so that we um, can get along as brothers in Christ. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Brotherly love puts others first. We don't, we're not selfish. We don't uh, try to accomplish our will and our goal. We're always looking out for the other person. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. We're to put the other person first. We're to love them and serve them and put their needs even ahead of ours. And that includes our family. Not ahead of our families, but we um, ought to be caring for other people and esteeming them better than ourselves. And then also there's hospitality. In Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. There were not a, a, a plethora of hotels and motels uh, in uh, the New Testament age like there are today. Um, there were inns, obviously, but you know, you, they weren't on every corner and you couldn't go online and make reservations at a hotel and things like that. Um, their their Wi-Fi they had back then was not real good. Um, but there, so there wasn't a lot of, of places to stay as people traveled. Um, and many believers, especially at this time as the church is just getting started, um, they, were, they were kicked out by their families. They were being persecuted. They were chased out of town and they had to flee to other places. And they couldn't just go stay at a hotel most of the time. So the church was instructed to, to be hospitable, to open their homes to those that were in need, to show um, some, uh, some love to those people. In verse 3, it goes on to say, Remember them, this is in Hebrews 13, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Brotherly love is practical. We care for others. Um, even uh, we, we know of ministries to, uh, to the prisons. And people are getting saved in prison. And if they come out, and when they come out, they need to grow in the Lord. We need to be hospitable to them and help them. They often have nothing 
when they come out. Um, and then those that are suffering affliction, um, be mindful of that. Watch for that and help them in any way that you can. Brotherly love is practical. It's not just a feeling. And then thirdly, love extends to those outside of the fellowship in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll read verse 11 again and then verse 12. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and then she may have lack of nothing. We need to love lost souls. Verse 11 tells us not to be a troublemaker. Mind your own business. Work hard. We go to work to do a job. Our employer is paying us a wage to do a specific function or duties at that employer. We, and hear me out, we are not there to be preachers. We are there to do a job. We're there to work for our employer. Sometimes the best preaching you can do at work is to be the best worker there. To be a good testimony. To show them how a Christian lives their lives and how they can work hard and they have a good work ethic and they're, they're um, willing to do what they're told to do. Because a lot of people, they, they look to get paid for as little as they can do. As, as just, they'll do just the bare, bare minimum to get by. And often when you work hard, um, others notice that. If you're making life difficult for others at work, you're not living a good Christian life. And secondly, be a good testimony. If you're not a secret agent, people are watching you. Your coworkers are keeping an eye on you. They're observing you. They know you claim to be a Christian, and so they're watching you, and they're waiting for you to slip up. You can do a thousand things right for weeks, for months, but you lose your temper just one time. Let loose with a curse word just one time. Tell an off-color joke just one time, and you've lost all credibility in their in their eyes. They know that you claim to be a Christian and they're waiting for you to slip up. And when you do, they're going to say, aha, I knew it. We need to be a good testimony. You know, we're human. We're, we're going to slip up. And we deal with that when it happens. But the closer we are to God, the more that we are living daily to please him, the less likely that something like that is going to happen. Um, and it being a good testimony while we're working, working hard, doing our job, can be the best preaching to those that are around us. The word honestly means decently. So living a decent life, being, being above reproach. Showing them another side of how we work. And I know I've touched on this before, but, um, you know, the rookie that came in and, was, and the two training officers were talking about him. And one tells the other, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't cuss. And, um, and I, I knew right away, this guy must be a Christian. Others notice. They see us because we live differently than they do. Romans 13.13 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, 
not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. Let us walk honestly, decently. Brotherly love is very practical. We walk in love. First in our love to God and His love for us. God is love. And that's not just um, something that He does. That's who God is. God is love. If we can just get a, a glimpse of how much God loves us, then we can attempt to share that love with those around us. As God's love is poured into our hearts, let it overflow to abound to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Looking for ways to help them, to show them our love. The Bible says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. If we're loving each other, if we're treating each other right, the world's going to notice. And just like the first century Christians, it's going to be a new concept to them and they're going to be baffled by it and they're going to be intrigued by it and they're going to be drawn to it. We need to love one another. And then let it continue to overflow to those who are lost. Let's love others to Christ. Share God's love with them. There's a lot of hate in this world today. And if we can share some love, if we can show some love and they can see that it's true, that it's not just something we're pretending, um, we can draw men to Christ because of Christ's love through us. Let brotherly love increase more and more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's practical, that it teaches us how we can live our daily lives. And as we come to you each day and we surrender to you, we die to ourselves, and we let the Holy Spirit lead us, we can make an impact in the lives of those around us and we can share the love that you have for us. Thank you for your gift and act of love in sending Jesus to die for our sins. God, we are... Eternally grateful for your son coming and sacrificing his body and his blood on the cross and raising again the third day that we might be reconciled to you. And we just pray that you would help us to turn around and share that love with those around us who are in need of a Savior and in need of someone who loves them. This week, Father, bring those who need your love across our paths and bring us into the path of those who need to see and experience God's love. Help us to be um, seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit each day and asking him to lead us to the person that needs to hear and experience God's love. Father, as we go into the next service, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. And again, if there's one here today that does not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today would be the day that they bow their knee and their heart to you and to Jesus and accept him as their Savior. We pray for every aspect of the service that it would bring honor and glory uh, to you. And We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.